We are so grateful for this family, for the GBC family. Um, I can't believe five years has gone by so fast, um, but we are just, we love where God has us. I love what I get to do. I love the people with whom I get to do it. And, uh, and it's been an absolute blessing. I actually love the area. Some of y'all come from like the South or the Midwest and you get here and you're like, man, things are expensive. This is the cheapest place I've ever lived. And so when family comes from California and friends come down from Boston, they're like, wow, everything's so cheap. And then y'all move from Oklahoma or you come up from, from, uh, from Georgia and you're like, wow, it's so expensive. You're spoiled, okay? <laughs> I love you, I love you. All right, we're gonna be in Galatians 6. We're gonna continue in, we're, we're finishing up Galatians today. So if you have a Bible, open up to Paul's letter to Galatia. We're gonna be in chapter six. And if you've been around GBC longer than me, more than five years, and you will remember someone by the name of Frank Vitale. When he preached, Pastor Frank, he was a former executive pastor here, he would often end with, end his sermon with, with, with a phrase. He would say, let's get practical. He stole that from Dr. Dave Reed, who also here, if you're here even longer. Now, the whole point, the reason I bring that up is because as Paul gets to Galatians 6, he's been very heady in a lot of parts of Galatians. He makes lots of arguments. And you know, people, some people really like that because you want a justification for you to be really argumentative and you just point to the fact that Paul's really argumentative. And yes, he's argumentative. We gotta balance that with some other things. But then last week, we see the fruit of the Spirit and what it looks like to kind of practically live out the truths, but being guided by the Spirit. And then today, he gets, gives us practical expressions of what it is to live in the fruit of the Spirit. He gives us practical expressions of love in the context of this community, the church, people who come together united by an affection for Jesus, united by the fact that they were rescued by Jesus. And so that's where we find ourselves today in Galatians chapter 6. And I have, because Paul gives us a ton of different things, so I was like, you know what, I'm not going to mess with that. We're just going to do them all. And he gives us six things. So we're going to do six rapid fire points to kind of go through it. And my hope is that you don't check out, but that at least one or two are meaningful to you. Okay? But we're going to go through six. We're going to start with Galatians 6, verse 1. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. I appreciate that that last sentence is added for, for you, so you yourselves won't be tempted because it's true when you confront somebody who's doing something they shouldn't be doing or is doing something they wish they weren't doing, you might call them an enabler, you know, that when you go into a confrontation like they're like, hey, you shouldn't be doing this, it's very easy for them to simply invite you into it. And it might be a habit you're trying to break and that they don't really care about, and you want to move them away from a self-destructive habit. And in so doing, they're like, well, how about you join? And you just find yourself enabled. Sometimes it can be something as, as low-key as just, hey, you want to change like exercise or dieting habits, but it can also be very, on the far more dicey end of the scale. I remember in college walking into a living room watching, and there was a group of men, a large group of men watching porn together. Yeah, that happened. You talk about enabling. You talk about what people are comfortable doing in a group setting. 
And so Paul, when you confront people, he wants you to be wary. He wants you to be cautious. He wants to make sure that you go in with some sort of firm foundation so that you're not yanked into whatever it is that they're doing. Now, having said that, the point of what he's saying here is that when people need to be confronted, that they are confronted how? Gently. Gently. Now, you can imagine, when the winds of the world come, how easy it is for the winds of the world to entice you and blow you off course, after which you would want to be gently restored. And we all have issues in our hearts, small little things that if we find ourselves in the wrong place or with the wrong people that can entice us. And the winds of the world can entice, you got little bits of pride, okay? And it'll blow you off course. You might see a particular thing or watch a particular influencer and all of a sudden it's enticing you in your vanity. You gotta come back. You might go to a certain store or watch a product reveal and you feel envy and coveting pulling you off course. You need to be restored gently. Whatever it might be, it's different for everyone. But when we confront people, Jesus, something that's really interesting is said about Jesus in John chapter one. It says that he came in grace and truth, right? And when we get pulled off course, the idea is that someone would do it gently. Our issue is that for many of us, it's just so much easier to be abrasive. It's just so much easier when we confront someone to put them down in the process. It's so much easier to focus on how much they're screwing up and what an inconvenience it is to everyone else. It's so, it's so much easier to use shame as a manipulative tactic when the goal of confrontation is restoration. That's the goal. Some of you might say, well, what about the wolves? When wolves creep in to try to destroy Shepherds pull out the staffs, that's different. When brothers and sisters begin to stumble and the winds of the world carry them, we're called to gently restore. And I can just hear because some people, and you talk about any, anything that Christ calls us to, any, any sort of like godly behavior that we're called to, sometimes people will revert back to, that's just not my personality. Zach, I'm just, I'm just not a patient person. Zach, I'm just kind of a harsh personality. You know, tenderness just isn't my thing. And if that's you, I need you to hear this. This is important. You're right. You are not patient. You are not tender. You are abrasive. And everyone around you probably knows it. But here's the point. If you've given your life to Jesus and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within you, when you wake up in the morning, you die and Christ lives in you. And you are not patient, but Christ is. And you are not tender, but Christ is. And you might be abrasive, but Christ is gentle. Which is why when we find ourselves in any kind of situation which we're called to love, man, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit as we die to self that Christ lives and that Christ acts. Even in our confrontations. That's number one. Brothers and sisters, we are to restore one another gently. Two. Verse two, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Law of Christ, 
Most people take that as Jesus' summation of, of the greatest command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We're talking about the law of love, that we are driven by an affection for God, an affection for others. And this talks about both corporately, as a whole, with the whole church, as well as interpersonally between people within the church. We are to be the kind of people who bear one another's burdens. We're to share each other's burdens. Now, as you think about this, if I were the enemy, think screw tape letters. If you read C.S. Lewis, it's a great book taking the taking the perspective of the enemy, trying to bring corruption into the life, into someone's life. Find the enemy, find the devil, find Satan. And I want to keep you from doing this. If I don't want you to share in the burdens of other people, what do I do? I fill your life with as many good things as possible so that you have zero room for godly things when the Holy Spirit prompts you towards them. That's how he does it. I heard someone wiser than me once say, God, if the, if the devil can't make you bad, he makes you busy. Which means that if he can get you to spend all your time on good things, he can keep you from having the margin in your life for the godly things that the Holy Spirit might prompt you. Now listen, when COVID happened, I heard so many people who were so grateful that the world shut down and that they had no activities and people loved, some people did, a lot of people did. I heard people praise the fact that they actually had time as a family. I'm talking about families here. The world shut down. Man, I don't have to take my kids to all these sports and all these instruments and all these extracurricular activities. And people praised how great it was. Now, those things aren't bad, okay? My kids do stuff. Those things aren't bad. But when the world reopened, many of us went into our calendar and we just filled it. And when things pop up, when needs pop up, how would you even know, how would you even have the capacity if all of who you are is spoken for? You think about that. Needs and burdens pop up spontaneously. Who meets them when your entire life is spoken for? When all of your time is spoken for? When all of your energy is spoken for? Heck, you could imagine coming in on a Sunday morning. I'm thinking from the enemy. Coming in on a Sunday morning, you meet someone that you know, and they say, hey, how are you doing? And maybe in an honest moment, you share what's actually going on in your life and a need that's happening. And maybe that person's in a place where they can actually say, you know what? Here, I can help in this way. You know how you prevent that conversation from happening? It's in the morning when the enemy says, it'd be so much more comfortable to just watch online. How do you keep people from sharing burdens? Well, you keep them from sharing time together. I want you to think about your energy and your money. Because if I were the enemy, I would get first world Americans to spend as much energy and money building up crazy, lavish, and luxurious first world kingdoms for themselves. Because you know what happens when you build that up for yourself? It takes a lot of energy to keep it clean and to keep it organized. And there's nothing left for everything else or for anyone else. What sort of margin do you have in your life is what I'm getting at here. 
He says, share each other's burdens. Would you know about people's burdens if they were there? And would you actually have the resources, time, energy, money to help? Or would you be far too overwhelmed by even the idea? Chances are you may be saying yes to too many things. We restore one another gently. We share each other's burdens. Three, continuing on. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. It's another reason why people might not share in burdens is pride. Verse four, let each person examine his own work and then he can take pride in himself and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Now that word load is different from the Greek word burden earlier. Paul's drawing a contrast. And it's so interesting, this says about pride, is he attacks the idea of pride, that you should not be proud, but then makes it very, very clear that you, based on what God has given you, to take pride in what you do with what God has lent you, not comparing yourself to others. He speaks against the kind of pride that lifts its nose at other people, but then says, when God lends you the house that you have, and God lends you the money that you have, and God lends you the stuff that you have, no one else has that, just you. So if you steward that stuff well, if you use that stuff in a godly way, and if you use that stuff that he's lent you for his kingdom as opposed to your own glory, then man, you get to take pride in that because that's God working through you with his stuff. And there's a difference. But pride is an issue. C.S. Lewis, he's got a great quote on pride. He says, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, it's a high view of Christians, by the way, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Scripture talks about pride. Proverbs 16. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. James 4 says but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here's the thing about pride. Pride separates us from God and it distances us from people. It separates us from God because pride says to God, I'm okay the way I am. I don't need you. I am enough. That's what pride does. And it distances us from people because it takes a position of superiority over the people around us. None of those end up serving the body. Ultimately separate us from God and distance us from people. The point here, our third point, is we're called to be self-discerning. He talks about restoring. He talks about sharing each other's burdens. And then here he says, test your own heart. You gotta be, you gotta be in a place to do this. I know some people hate to be by yourselves. You hate to not be occupied. Journaling may not be your thing, but we need moments, quiet moments, set aside in which we go to God and actually examine the condition of our own hearts. That has to happen. I mean, my car, well, every now and again, when it hits certain mileage, the car goes to the mechanic and they run a check to see if any work needs to be done. Because if it doesn't get done, worser things happen. You would do that for your car. Do it for your hearts. You need to take time with God. Reflect. 
It might not be pride, it might be something else. But we need heart checks with the Lord. Be self-discerning. Continuing reading on, Galatians 6, 6. I told you, rapid fire. Number six, verse six. Let the one who is taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Now I wanna admit, a little bit of awkwardness on having to talk about a verse that basically says you're supposed to share stuff with me. That's strange. Okay. First off, every single historian I looked at with reference to this verse pointed to the fact that this shows us there was a very early existence of full-time ministry in the church, which is a pretty neat thing. That very, very early on in the church in the first century, you already had people who were so dedicated to shepherding the church, to teaching, to catechesis. You had all these different things that were happening, the discipling of new believers that precluded them from spending time working. And so that people within the church were responsible for sharing and caring for as an expression of burden sharing, which Paul already mentions. This is one expression of sharing burdens is taking care of the people who are helping teach and lead and pastor within the church. Now, having said that, you need to be very clear, especially if you're new, because people come here with all sorts of, all sorts of spiritual abuse in their backgrounds, money manipulation in their backgrounds. And so if that's you, and this puts you on edge just a little bit, man, the church just wants our money. Listen, when I speak and welcome aboard week three, every time, when I'm in welcome aboard week three, I give people reasons when we get in the scripture why they might not, why they, why they shouldn't give, okay? We talk about why people should give, but we discuss that too. In addition to that, if a consultant came into our church and looked at the way we do giving here, they would recommend very quickly two or three giant tweaks and would, and, and would tell us this will increase your giving. We don't do things like church, other churches do things when it comes to money. We're not after your money. God is after your heart. And it just so happens that hearts follow treasure. That's according to Jesus. And so if you, whatever you give money to, your affections follow. You're gonna care about it. And God knows when you give to his mission, you're gonna care about how the mission is doing. When you give to the church, you're gonna care about how the church is doing. And in this particular case, he wants people to give so that people who can be paid on staff part-time or, or, or full-time to do the work of the ministry and to equip others for the work of the ministry. That's the point. Support your church leaders. So that's not too bad. That wasn't too bad. Not too, it could have been more awkward, okay? Unlike people on television, I am not going to pull out a whole bunch of holy hankies and tell you if you give me $1,000, it'll bring healing into your home, okay? Please stop watching that. That's trash, okay? <laughs> trash. Give those down, down, down thumbs on YouTube when you see them. Moving on. Verse 7. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Now, Paul uses an agricultural illustration here. Which makes so much sense. And I know for a fact in this church, we got a lot of gardeners. 
Okay, we got a lot of wannabe gardeners, but we got some really good gardeners here too. I got plenty of friends in in Ledger that have like farms in their backyard. Um, So other places too, I get it. But here's the deal. If you're gonna, if you've prepared the soil and you're really excited about a particular vegetable and you go in and you take it and you choose three seeds and you drop one here and you drop one there and you drop one there, no one's gonna expect a full crop. It's just not gonna come. And if you plant all of one vegetable, you're gonna be really surprised if everything turns out to be strawberries. What's the point here? Paul's talking about two different kinds of people, people who sow into the flesh, referencing back to chapter five. People who live life in the flesh. These are people who've not given their life to Jesus. These are people living in the flesh. And they're the kinds of people who say, not you, my way, not your way, my way. And if you're on the fence about Christianity or the Bible, it's all kind of new to you. Let me just point out this whole idea of sowing into the flesh leading to destruction. You get glimpses of that in this world. There is no better way to destroy a friendship or relationship, a marriage, than by operating with a posture of forget you, I do what I want. Forget you. I do whatever feels good. Forget you, I do whatever makes me happy. Forget you, I do whatever causes me physical pleasure. That will destroy a relationship. And in the same way, when people say, forget God, I do what I want. That the picture Paul gives us is sowing into the flesh and that leads to destruction. Some of your Bibles say corruption and you're gonna experience that pain and suffering in this life in some form or fashion and ultimately for eternity because that in a relationship and with this relationship causes distance either way. But the other picture Paul gives is of those who sow in the spirit. He already talked about the fruit of the spirit. For those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who say, not my way, but your way, who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who move in the Spirit. And that doesn't mean that the wind of the world can't entice at times, but that we're brought back, that we repent, that we confess in the context of the community God has gifted us as bride the church. That there's something absolutely beautiful about that. And those who sow there reap in with eternal life. Gary actually pointed out, between services to me that sometimes when you sow, you don't see results right away. And some of you know that in friendships. Some of you know that in parenting. Some of you see that in your workplace. But you try to be faithful and you try to sow the right seeds, trusting that God will do his thing. That's our call, to be faithful. We gotta sow into the spirit. Finally, Wrapping up, verse 14. Paul spends a few verses comparing the flesh. Um, the Judaizers had come in and had convinced people that you gotta be Jewish before you can be Christian. You gotta be circumcised before you can have Jesus. And, and Paul is, is pointing to the fact that they boast in their flesh. And there's some wordplay happening here because as they boast in their flesh, Paul has in his mind the sins of the flesh in mind. So there's lots of different reasons for him to talk poorly about the flesh. There's nothing to boast in in the flesh, let alone being circumcised, okay? Circumcision doesn't get you Jesus, like they were arguing. 
But in verse 14, he wraps it up with this, this beautiful, this is the last verse I'm going to read. He says this. He says, but as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the world. This is a beautiful, natural result for someone who sees Jesus as he is, for someone who receives Jesus as he is. This is, this is only natural. What I mean by that is, for someone who knows that Jesus is Lord and Savior, God in the flesh, who came, who lived the perfect life we couldn't, who died the death we deserved so that we could have the life we don't deserve, that Jesus, for someone who believes that that Jesus came, died an atoning death as a, a substitutionary sacrifice for me, and then rose from the grave so that if I trust in him, I get that life. I get to share in that victory. That when I stand before God, it's not based on my merit. My, my, my good works are but filthy rags. But when I stand before God, I get declared not guilty. I get declared righteous because of what Jesus did. And when you entrust yourself to that person and you say your way, not my way, and the Holy Spirit indwells. And in the morning when you wake up, you, you die to self. And you try to live leaning on the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. When good things happen, when you're a part of good things happening, when you do things that are good, if all of that, if you understand all of those things, all of those parts, every domino that's led to you being where you are, then ultimately, the one who gets the credit is the one who started the dominoes. The one who gets boasted about is the one who did all the work. And that's not me. And I think for us, we talked about people who struggle being abrasive. A lot of people struggle with evangelism or they struggle talking to people about Jesus. I would be willing to bet when you do really, really great things for some of you, Boasting may not be a struggle. I'll tell you, boasting in Christ, what a witness. What a witness. Heck, I've watched enough sports with Christians to know that you get an athlete whose life is worldly in every possible way, okay? But at the end of a game, mentions Jesus for two seconds. Christians get so excited. He mentioned Jesus on TV. It's like, he doesn't mention it with his life, but he mentioned it there, but still there's something about him mentioning Jesus. You imagine when good things happen because of what God has lent to you and the transformation God has brought into your life to be able to give God the credit, to be able to boast in Christ. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful witness. So hear me, I'm gonna go over them one more time because there's six of them and you may have forgotten. Restore one another gently, gently. The aim of confrontation is restoration. Two, sharing each other's burdens. And if you are far too busy to think about that, change something. Change something. It's not optional. Be self-discerning. Get time with the Lord. Okay? Let him do an oil change on your heart from time to time. Four, support your church leaders. I would just say be generous. Five, sow into the spirit, not the flesh. And six, when we boast, 
We boast in Jesus because he's worth it. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, may one or two of these prompts from Paul sit on our hearts, be worth discussion, be worth contemplation, be worth the challenge that you bring. We ask that your truths don't sit on pages, Lord, but that they would wreck hearts. We'll do that today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.